Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Peter Head to the podcast. Peter is a civil and structural engineer who's passionate about using sustainable development principles in construction. Peter worked for many years at the design and engineering group, Arup, running its planning and integrated urbanism department, working on award-winning eco-urban projects. In 2011, he set up the Ecological Sequestration Trust, whose aim is to help cities, regions and communities develop sustainable energy and water systems and enhanced food security in the face of the combined environmental challenges they are now facing. Thank you very much, Peter, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Good morning, Fergal. It's very nice to talk to you um, and uh, hopefully I can tell you a bit about um, my career. I've, I'm, I'm 72 years old, so I've been working in engineering, planning and sustainability for quite a long time. Yes, absolutely. You have a varied, uh, uh, extensive background, I guess, in the worlds of building, the environment and, uh, and, and currently resilience, which I guess covers uh, many different aspects. I mean, can you give us uh, maybe a little bit of an overview of your career? Yes, um, I, I sort of looking back over my career, I see it as sort of a journey with seven year cycles in it. And I've been through quite a lot of seven year cycles, most of them concerned with significant uh, innovation. And that's led me now into uh, looking at a combination of sustainable development, resilience uh, and coping with climate change. But I started as a civil engineer. I graduated from Imperial College in 1969, a long time ago, uh, and got into bridge engineering and major bridges. And in, in, in that sense, I learned about the the interaction between infrastructure and the social, economic and environmental outcomes for communities and how you deliver that successfully. Uh, I got involved in private financing of infrastructure. And then actually my involvement in cities started in around uh, 2000 when Ken Livingstone was elected to set up the Greater London Authority in London, which never had a mayor before. And I got appointed as an independent commissioner for sustainable development and worked with him very closely for eight years with about 15 other commissioners to help turn London from what was a pretty bad state into a sustainable city. And I got very involved in delivering the London Olympics and um, both bidding and delivering for it, uh, it and, and ended up. Um, moving from engineering into planning with uh, consultant Arup and then got involved in uh, planning ecological cities in China uh, and that led me into helping to design the sustainable development goals and particularly sustainable development goal 11 for cities and I'm now involved with the UN's disaster risk reduction work for developing resilient cities. So I've had quite a journey from being a bridge engineer to resilient cities. Yes, indeed. That's quite a journey. What's on your mind at the moment, Peter? Um, there's so many uh, 
environmental issues around what what worries you the most or what are the few things that you particularly focusing on and that are, are of greatest concern to you at the moment well i suppose since about in my life since about 2004 i've been extremely concerned about climate change and its impacts and in 2004 this was still something we anticipated would happen i mean today we're seeing the impact of climate change happening all over the world and it's particularly devastating for the poorer people in cities around the world who are suffering from heat waves and floods and and all sorts of um, economic and social issues resulting from that and so what's on my mind is how we can help people to to both cope with reducing the risks that they're facing but also helping the world to to try and make sure we don't make it even worse by continuing with um, uh, carbon emissions and other things. Uh, so, you know, and cities are very much part of that, too. So it's it's basically working out how to help scale up uh, a response to that situation. Yes. I mean, how bad are things in your mind? I, th- I think things are already pretty bad. I mean, uh, I, I, I tend to monitor the things that are going on on Twitter and um, there isn't a day that goes by without a, a pretty serious situation happening in a city somewhere in the world um, because of more intense rainfall events and because of um, heat wave impacts. And, um, you know, if I take Japan as a country that um, doesn't tend to shout much about what's happening there, but they are suffering from really intense events very regularly with uh, mudslides and 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 uh, rockfall events affecting communities on the edge of their cities and and the economic impact of that is beginning to be very serious for the whole of japan's economy not just obviously for local people so i mean that's just one example of hundreds and, and thousands of events around the world every month yes now, why are cities particularly important? I know uh, there's uh, a great trend towards urbanization. I think something like 50% of the population of the world lives in cities now, uh, heading towards 70% by some estimates over the next 20 years or so. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of cities and uh, some of the, maybe just give a little overview of, 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 of how good cities are or can be in terms of uh, helping us deal with some of the environmental issues we face? Yes, when we talk about cities, uh, I, I like to sort of frame a discussion about cities in, 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 in the sense of a city region. You know, with cities, I'm sure anyone listening to this would imagine perhaps the, you know, the urban street and the, the downtown and the buses and cars and, you know, and the complex goings on in the streets and buildings. But actually, a city region operates in terms of providing food and water and energy and materials and goods, uh, it, it operates very much as a region where the surrounding area, the farmland and and surrounding area is part of the way the, 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 the city operates from a resilience point of view. And so when I talk about cities, I tend to talk about it from that, that point of view, just, just so that's clear. Um, so basically what, what's happening around the world is that people uh, see uh, an economic benefit to them and their families, that, that financial benefit, if you like, by moving into a city from the countryside, because the incomes in in, in countryside areas are, are relatively low in developing countries, and therefore moving to the city is 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 a way of lifting their fortunes. 
and uh, as kids get taught and trained they, they they tend to find jobs in cities so there is this inexorable movement of people into cities around the world and that requires the construction of a lot of infrastructure to provide the energy water waste management housing needs and to build the buildings and industries that uh, create the jobs that supply the demand um, the thing about cities is they do uh, effectively because of lifestyles in cities people end up using more energy uh, they tend to be a bit wealthier and eat more food than people in the countryside so actually the demand for goods and services goes up and and that requires a lot of investment so basically the situation is that as climate change comes along and, and as these events happen that disrupts the infrastructure that's put in place then, then people are more vulnerable uh, in that situation because they're all living closer together and they got used to a certain lifestyle which can be very seriously disrupted by these uh, serious events. So actually cities are both a focus of economic success but also a focus in climate change for economic disaster and social disaster all at the same time. And that's really the stress point that we're trying to address at the moment. Yes, I'd like to come back to that in a moment. You mentioned uh, one of the R words, resilience. Can you talk a little bit about resilience, or explain what resilience means to you and why it's important? Yes, I will. Um, a lot of people are fairly used now to the term sustainable development, which is about moving social, economic and environmental uh, progress forward as, as a sort of holistic approach. Um, resilience has come in uh, and resilience really is a mathematical term originally. It's, it's actually a condition of a system whereby uh, if you, you can imagine it as a bowl, if you drop a, a ball into a bowl, it, it, it sort of goes backwards and forwards and comes to a stable place. Whereas if you drop it on the outside of a bowl upside down, it falls off and will never be stable. Resilience is the condition where, where the ball comes back to a stable place. So imagine that the ball is a community and a society that's working. If, if you disturb it in some profound way by cutting off some services or something, a resilient place is one where there is alternative supplies or alternative systems or people can drop everything and sort it out quickly and get back to a normal lifestyle again. So resilience is a condition of a community where they can work together, where they can get alternative supplies and resources quickly to deal with any disturbance or problem. Right. Now, when you apply this then to cities, um, how resilient do cities tend to be? What are a few key uh, drivers of resilience or a few key elements that you would say uh, add to, uh, to help uh, urban or a, a city or, the, I guess, uh, the, the local area are more resilient? There's a number of things. One, one is the cohesion of the community uh, in, in a sense. Are they looking out for each other or are they looking out for themselves? And that tends to be conditioned by quite a lot of uh, complex issues. One of them is governance, uh, both at the national level and the local level. You know, is there a governance structure which is a dictatorship where where people are not encouraged to 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 operate as a community, where the you know where the government actually operates in a way that discourages community behaviour, that leads to a, a, a considerable risk in terms of non-resilience. Because if some outside event happens, like a big flood or something, people just don't have the infrastructure in place to deal with it. 
Um, whereas if you've got a, a society where, where there are community groups, community networks and so on, then actually people are able to uh, mobilize those networks, which could be their faiths or religious networks or, 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 or other community structures. They can mobilize that, those networks quickly and deal with it. So that's one dimension. That's the social dimension. But then, of course, there's the technical um, infrastructure dimension of, of the fact that we need energy every day. We need clean water every day. We need supplies of food. Uh, and those things, uh, and, and mobility as well, uh, those things can be affected um, by floods, by heat waves. And the problem that we're finding is a lot of infrastructure that's planned and designed over a very long period of time, you know, infrastructure that's put into a city will be expected to last for probably at least 50 years, if not 100 years. Uh, the, the design standards for that infrastructure are often uh, not uh, such that they can accommodate these new um, climate change induced uh, effects. So actually, we're, although we may be raising our standards, we actually have to retrofit uh, the existing system so they're more resilient, which can be quite expensive and difficult and, and technically complex. So actually, it, it's raising all sorts of issues. And I can tell you a bit more later, maybe about some of those techniques and ideas uh, for dealing with these things. Yes. I, another question, I guess, related to that is this question of scale. And um, I know people like Kirkpatrick say that there, there, there's been, uh, and I guess, Schumacher uh, originally as well. But um, the optimal scale and so forth uh, for any kind of, I guess, uh, organism or ecosystem and so forth. Um, and when you think of a city like London, for example, and the vast amount of, uh, you know, food and supplies and, 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 and so forth that, that, that need to come in uh, daily, uh, you know, to keep the city going. Can you talk a little bit about what your sense of what, what, what's a good scale for a city and, and, and maybe some of the issues related to scale? Yeah, that's a very interesting question and quite hard to answer. But um, the, the, a lot of uh, research that's been done on cities shows that as they get bigger, um, they tend to speed up. So everything gets faster. So in bigger cities, people tend to walk faster. Uh, they, they tend to expect things to happen quicker. So, so, so actually, there is a strange sort of phenomenon that uh, that as cities get bigger, they sort of speed up, which is not a very sustainable, resilient uh, issue. So we got used to something which which can be disrupted. Um, in terms of uh, ecological systems and living in harmony with nature and all the things that keep us healthy and um, uh, and and feeling good every day, which are really important. Uh, there's increasing evidence that although cities may get bigger, you need to make sure there is enough natural systems operating within that that can actually help with the resilience and help with good health and well-being. And so in, in some parts of the world, cities have got much bigger without putting those natural systems in place. Uh, one example is Beirut, which has almost no um, uh, parks and, and green spaces at all. Whereas other cities have got much bigger by having those, like and London's quite a good example of that, and that actually helps a lot. Um, when, when we were working in China on the ecological cities, uh, cities in China are very much bigger. You know, the, you know a city of four million people in China is, is really quite small, and there they're beginning to struggle with understanding 
the answer to your question. You know, what's a what's a good scale? You know, should you stop a large city growing and actually grow smaller cities somewhere else instead? And we tend to start looking at Holland as a very interesting example. Holland has a population of about 12 million people, but it's a series of uh, uh, urban centres surrounded by agriculture and good public transport, and you can walk and cycle between them. And, and increasingly, we're seeing Holland as a large city model, which is rather a rather good model for, for future resilient city planning. So, so I think we, we need to start thinking about urban centres with uh, parks and rural areas in between with very good public transport as the sort of model for, for, for moving forward with, with city scale. If you, if you have that, then scale can get bigger and bigger. Yes, it's quite interesting. I just saw a video recently, I think it was on uh, Copenhagen and the tremendous work they have done in reducing carbon uh, emissions uh, via cycling and uh, energy. Uh, really amazing. But in this particular uh, video that I, I saw, there was really no mention of, uh, I guess, urban greening or natural systems at all, which I found quite strange. Uh, I mean, how, how well understood and how far are we along on the journey of, of being able to, to actually, you know, understand and integrate? And you mentioned London, but a lot of these uh, uh, parks and things are there for you know hundreds of years and so forth. <laughs> yeah, they are, and we're very lucky in a sense that the Victorian planners um, who who planned quite a lot of London, often private uh, co companies actually, uh, did include parks in, in in their planning. And one of the reasons for that actually is that people actually like them, and therefore the property values are higher if you live on the edge of a park. So often the parks were, were planned and put in place partly by private sector interests who saw the benefit of including them in, in the developments. You know, if you look at Regent's Park and Hyde Park and those things in London. Um, but now, of course, we understand in a more holistic way of looking at it that, that there are huge benefits. And in fact, if we go back to Denmark, which you just mentioned, Fergal, uh, in Denmark, they've done a very big longitudinal study of urban living uh, in Denmark over about 20 to 30 years. And they back analyzed that data of people's health, both physical and mental health. They back analyzed it uh, against the accessibility of individuals and where they live to green space. And what they found is a fantastic correlation in terms of reduce, uh, reducing uh, mental health problems by, by living near green space in, in the history of den uh, living in cities in Denmark. And so uh, this, this type of understanding of the more holistic systems, uh, but you know, the, the relationship between the way cities are organized and the way they operate and people's health and well-being, the understanding of that from a scientific point of view is now much stronger than it's ever been. And therefore, we can now start planning with those links in place to actually enable uh, much greater value and much greater productivity and happiness to be to be evolved. Uh, so it, it, Copenhagen is, is an example which actually has some green parks, but certainly the new developments, the Nordhaven and other developments in Copenhagen, are now taking those things into account rather more than they have in the past. 
Very interesting. Now you talked about cities, uh, eco cities in China and so forth. Um, h- how far ahead, or what, what? What are some of the lessons or insights that you have as uh, with respect to what's happening in China and what the possibilities are in terms of, I guess, designing eco cities? Are, are there uh, some some insights? Yes, I think they are. Again, it's quite complex. Um, we, we started working when I was um, uh, running Arabs planning business um, from from around 2004 to 2011. Uh, we did a, we we um, that's a huge team in China uh, worked in, on a lot of planning of ecological cities. And the reason for that was that China uh, it actually now in its constitution has the desire to move to the ecological civilization yes i just uh, in one, which people one, are able yes one statistic i saw recently um i think it's vaclav schmiel who's uh, a terrier for finding all these statistics and things i don't know whether this is um well i, I don't know where this statistic exactly comes from but uh, according to uh, vaclav he says china's poured more cement every three years since 2003 than the u.s in the entire 20th century so just to set some kind yes. of uh, idea yeah. of the scale of building that. Yeah, and, and that was really going absolutely full bore uh, around 2000, 2005. Uh, and the, they really were heading in, in completely the wrong direction. They, they, were, they were following a, a development model of cities, which was all about pouring concrete and, and having very wide roads and 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 just having buildings and roads and and uh, service support systems without any uh, idea of building in natural systems and parks and and green space and and so on and and that realization uh, and the realization the amount of goods uh, amount of consumption they would need would um, would go up and up was was quite real we we actually did an analysis of that uh, process and uh, one way of measuring the consumption of, of, of aggregates and cement and other things uh, which require huge amounts of land and materials to, to deliver them is, to, is something called ecological footprint where you actually measure the, the amount of land you need to support that sort of rapid development and at the time we did that analysis around 2004 China was ex- expanding and accelerating its consumption of those things so quickly that its ecological footprint was growing at around 4% a year, which doesn't maybe sound very much, but the amount of land they needed for over a billion people uh, to actually support that urbanization process was uh, almost twice the area of France every year had to be found around the world to support the amount of materials and goods flowing into that process. And clearly that they they realised that wasn't sustainable. I mean, it's why you see China involved in mining in in South America and, and Africa and, uh, and and taking goods out of Australia. Uh, you know, they had to do that in order to support that process, and they realised that this couldn't go on. You know, they had to find a model which required less materials, uh, um, enable people to live more in harmony with natural systems. So that since around two thousand and four, they've been trying to do that. Um, but it's very hard to do it because actually no country in the world has ever really done it before. Uh, everyone has pursued the more industrial uh, civilization model. So they are trying to do it, but I wouldn't say it was entirely successful yet. Excellent, excellent. So um, what would be one or two other 
key dimensions that you think looking forward that we can uh, think about in terms of cities, cities that are already designed, maybe cities that are already there, and a few things that would make a, a, a big difference. Clearly, I mean, you talked about the ecological footprint, there's the carbon emissions, which seem to be lower, uh, certainly in the UK, in, in, in larger urban areas. I guess a related uh, issue is, is air pollution and so forth. Um, you know, uh, but, but I'm just wondering, are there two or three uh, developments, things going on that, that make you optimistic and that you think are, are, are really worth thinking about and integrating in terms of future uh, city, uh, just ur- ur- urban environmental uh, management? Yeah, there are two or three uh, new um, evolving technologies and what I would call city retrofit uh, ideas and technologies which are moving forward around the world which actually show a lot of promise to improve resilience and sustainable development. One, one of those is um, following on from China, is the idea of turning cities into what they call sponge cities. Um, and, and this is basically as rainfall intensity increases to create an environment in which the runoff of that rainwater is slowed down uh, and the, there is storage capacity under the ground to actually stop that water rushing off into the rivers to avoid flooding. And uh, China uh, set out originally to retrofit 14 quite large cities with this technology. And it was very successful in terms of reducing not the very extreme floods, but knocking off the, 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 the floods that tend to happen once, twice or three times every year. Um, stop those, but still maybe get the extreme flood every 10, 20 years. Uh, and that has been uh, really successful. And that basically is a matter of turning parks into uh, areas where lakes can form uh, when it rains to actually have sustainable urban drainage where the water instead of running into hard drains goes into the soil and gets absorbed planting more trees that slow the water runoff underground to actually put in um, um, uh, green roofs which slow the water off off the buildings Uh, a whole combination of different ideas like that which have been very successful and are now being looked at by by other cities around the world so that's one thing on the rainfall side On the carbon side, another development which I've very much been helping to move forward over around 15 years now is the idea of turning buildings into power stations, both for electricity and for um, heat, so that actually uh, we no longer need to have external, uh, over the course of a year, you don't need to have centralised power stations supplying most of the electricity or gas uh, to supply the heating of buildings because uh, the buildings can do that for themselves by interacting with the sun and storing both electrical energy and heat energy, uh, both uh, in the shorter term, but also maybe interseasonally as well. And the technologies for doing that are now very much being uh, tested and deployed and rolled out around the world. And they can, could be retrofitted into existing cities as well as used in new buildings. So there is a vision now of a possibility of the future where the buildings themselves connected to microgrids can actually be the main energy source for, for, for living in the buildings themselves, which would make a very big difference. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, we talked about the actual scale of um, 
building that's been going on and and uh, and I think uh, somebody I spoke to recently was saying that uh, uh, it, it amounts to adding uh, an area the size of New York every month in terms of urban <laughs> uh, building for the next 40 years um, I, I now uh, staggering kind of idea um, you're talking about we're talking about retrofitting and cities that are already there this question of building cities I guess uh, just quickly on that um, I mean cement is uh, a big issue isn't it uh, are you up to that there's uh, real potential there. You, you read about uh, low carbon cements and so forth. What's happening there, Peter? Yeah, I've been I've been following the the cement story very closely as well through my career. And uh, cement has to be basically uh, created by by heating up uh, uh, minerals uh, and firing them. And basically, in the end, you have to find ways of doing that with renewable energy. Uh, you know, f- f- and probably less energy than than previously. Uh, and the other thing is to use less cement to create the same strength, which you can u- do using cement replacement, using waste, uh, fly ash from power stations and other things. So there is a whole lot of technologies there which are, are coming along for reducing the carbon impact of cement, but of course, it, one will never be able to reduce it to, to, to zero, in my view, um, but it can be reduced quite significantly. Cement is a great material, and I, I don't ever see it being re- totally replaced. So uh, so I think, you know, that that direction is is, is good, but there, always, there, there is always going to be some carbon intensity. The recycling of aggregates, is completely established now as a methodology. So we shouldn't need to dig so much aggregate and sand out of the out of the land anymore. We should be able to recycle a lot of sand and aggregates from existing um, uh, systems. And and one of the opportunities there is to remove roads from cities, a lot of roads, uh, by substituting public transport, walking and cycling. And that can provide a lot of aggregate for other purposes. Yes, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, I, I, if I could go back to, uh, well, I guess you wear many hats. I've worn many hats, but resilience is. Uh, you do you do a lot of work around around the, the whole area of resilience. I'd like to talk a little bit about that, if I might. But just coming back to this question of scale again and resilience, and 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 I guess resilience and scale, and how that changes. You know, you can just you can see. You know the potential of a town integrated into a local, you know, agricultural area with some supplies. You know how that might be resilient when you get to 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 a certain scale. You know, if you think of somewhere like London. You know, how does this the the the, the nature of the challenge uh, to to create to make a city like that more resilient change as you get bigger and bigger? it becomes uh, much more complex. So um, what we're trying to do to help cities is really to um, is to create models of, of the existing supply and uh, dynamic systems that operate in cities and then to apply uh, scenario risks to that to understand how to cope with that in a more resilient way. Uh, and and so I think in in a way the answer to your question is that we don't really know yet because we haven't really I think come to terms with full models of existing uh, cities and their uh, and the the way they operate. 
But I'll come back to a point I made earlier that actually it isn't just the size, it's actually the governance structures which are really important and the way that people react in particular situations within their social networks. And we saw, in fact, in the New Orleans flood, which happened uh, a few years ago now, that actually the people were not in a very cohesive state and they, they were really unable to help themselves very much and were waiting to, for help. And, and, and the ability in a city to, to, to operate differently is quite a strong one. A bigger city should, in theory, be able to operate in a much more cohesive way by the people, you know, dropping everything and, and sorting things out. And actually in Japan, the society is like that because they have so many disasters and so many problems. There is a culture in Japan of everyone dropping everything and, and getting together to, to deal with problems that occur. And I think that's as much as an important issue as it is the, the size and scale on the technical side. Well, that's very interesting because I know um, social scientists and others have you know, commented upon the lack of, uh, I guess, uh, maybe a crowding out of the civic nature or civic society in many uh, parts of the world and maybe associated with a pretty extreme form of capitalism as well. Um, that, you know, in big urban areas, clearly major financial centers, major uh, business centers, uh, hand in hand with, you know, this, this, uh, maybe atomization, uh, people feeling more individual, less connected and so forth. So I suppose in that way, we've, we've come quite a long way in a particular economic model, particular economic cycle, whatever you might call it, the last 30 years with a fairly, um, intense form of, of, well, whatever you might call it, free market, neoliberalism, whatever and so forth. So I suppose potentially, um, are you seeing is, is there scope there uh, for 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 social change? Do you see uh, new models emerging that may may not be quite so, uh, or the potential of that? As as you know, there does seem to be a, a, maybe not quite a tipping point, but um, you know, uh, even the Economist now is regularly running uh, the Financial Times, you know, pieces about the the question about you know this this solitary pursuit of profit by large corporations and so forth, and maybe there's some change in the air. I think there is change in the air and, and there's a very interesting connectivity between uh, the low carbon solutions, the social solutions and the large city transformations in the sense that um, the the reversal of the hollowing out of cities with, with communities moving back into city centres, with the improvement of public transport, the substitution of roads with walking and cycling routes. And the, the 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 emergence of community structures um, coming back again is a very you know something that that fits with all the sustainable development criteria uh, and low carbon living criteria and some of the things I've already mentioned about the way the buildings operate do that too. So this basic process of decentralisation combined with um, community uh, ownership and community involvement in decision making is something that is a profound opportunity that comes out of this. And it is where everyone is now beginning to think about the way that uh, more resilient and, and sustainable structures should be formed in cities. And uh, I think the cutting edge of this uh, change is happening in Copenhagen and in, in Stockholm. Um, but it's only really at the beginning. I'll give you some examples on this in terms of development models. 
there is a community interest development model being used in Copenhagen for the new developments where the community have a continuing say in the way that the community evolves and develops over time uh, as an example of that. Yes, it's very interesting that there's some uh, 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 press coverage of, of, of what was going on in King's Cross and who actually owned the, the, the actual property there or the land um, and, and, you know, who could control it and, and their ability to stop, you know, people uh, marching or stop people gathering there to, to you know, um, raise, to, 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 to take action against issues that they, you know, found in London and, and maybe climate change and things like that. Um, so I guess that connection between people who live in a community, um, I guess, the, the, the what, what a very extreme form of that would have been maybe somewhere like the LA model, <laughs> um, but uh, you're optimistic that we're we're seeing more kinds of ways of uh, organizing and governance emerging. Yeah, there are. I mean, there are some great examples in the US. Actually, Detroit has got some some amazing uh, redevelopments of some of the big mall sites into walkable mixed use neighborhoods. Where, where there is a much more, you know, community-led spirit emerging. So, I, I mean, there are some really exciting examples of this in the U.S. as well, actually. Right, very interesting. And, and where is this drive for change coming from? I mean, certainly when, when we had this whole thing about uh, Paris Agreement and, and Trump and America not being involved, you started to see more, uh, at least more publicity about what the cities were doing uh, in America. And, and generally there is this trend, isn't there, towards more city uh, governance, paying more attention to city governance and whatever the, in the UK with the, the mayors and so forth. Uh, but, but generally um, there's these other kinds of governance emerging. Yes, um, that, that's very true. Um, I think national governments are realising more and more that the future success of the country depends on the success of their urban areas. And uh, that is something which increasingly uh, people are looking to have a more decentralised governance structure around it. And uh, in developing countries, that, that's very much the case. Uh, so it's very important that national governments have uh, an urban development strategy which allows the national government targets for sustainable development and resilience and so on to be basically managed at a local level. And as soon as that type of relationship happens, then actually things can really start happening at a local level. In America, uh, the cities are pursuing a low carbon uh, strategy um, uh, despite what's happening at the national uh, federal level, um, because they see it as a, an advantage. They see it as a, a, a way of creating jobs, a way of reducing living costs, a way of improving uh, life. So it's no longer a matter of looking at it as, as a cost. They see it as a way of improving life, really. Uh, and the Green New Deal, so-called, will emerge, I think, very strongly as something that's very, very much moved forward at a city region scale. Yes, I spoke to Rob Hopkins from Transitions Town uh, a few months ago, and it's very interesting to the transition movement um, operating at that level of towns, and, and, and again, a little bit the local areas as well. Um, very interesting, growing uh, quite rapidly across Europe, indeed. Um, um, How is the UK doing, Peter? The, the UK is, is extremely patchy uh, in relation to this sort of uh, dynamic. I think the city resilience issue uh, isn't really being tackled in quite a, a, a profound enough way, particularly in relation to flood risk. 
Um, there are some examples like in Leeds where they've developed a very a very innovative flood management uh, uh, approach. Uh, I think one of the big problems with it is in the UK has been the, the austerity program since 2008. The austerity program really has has, has pulled back a lot of in, uh, investment in, in infrastructure systems in cities at a time when we probably needed to increase the investment in, in a greater resilience and sustainability. So I think in a way we've stood still or even gone backwards. And of course, that's not the community cohesion issue as well, because uh, people don't feel, you know, the social services are there, the community services are not there. So I would say in the UK, uh, we're drifting backwards compared with the uh, sustainable development and resilience investments that are going on in the rest of the world. And, and hopefully that can be changed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, maybe there's some political change on the horizon, something, hopefully. Um, yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of political change, potentially, yes. Yes, amidst <laughs> the chaos and so forth. Now, can you talk a little bit, maybe, finally, about resilience brokers? Uh, what is it you're doing with uh, around the area of resilience? What, what, what are you trying to do here, and what are some of the things, the projects you're, you're working on? Yes, yeah, so in 2011, um, I decided to leave um, Arup, um, where I was running the planning business, uh, because I could see that there was a massive gap between investment uh, and capital investment and the ability for uh, cities to be able to move forward and bring forward bankable projects that would deliver the sort of resilience and sustainable development that I was talking about. So I formed a charity called the Ecological Sequestration Trust, and over the years, we've been exploring what tools and systems and, and processes would enable uh, cities to connect up to capital to be able to move forward. So to overcome the sort of problems I just talked about in, in the UK, to be able to do that for themselves. And as we went along with experimenting on, on digital data systems, modeling and so on, which we could then uh, give to cities to enable them to move forward, uh, we we found as we talked to insurers and, and investors that that people said to us, you know what you are, you're you're resilience brokers. You know you're you're actually not because the intention was never to do it ourselves, but to help cities to do it for themselves. And so we decided to set up an operating company called Resilience Brokers to actually literally broker uh, the tools and systems into city demonstrators, so that cities could actually do this. All, all the things I've been talking about for themselves and attract capital to, to move it forward and act as demonstrators for other cities so they could then do it too and we could make those tools and systems available and, and scale it across the world and, and scale it to every country in the world very quickly to enable people to move to a more resilient and sustainable place by 2030. So we're basically brokering uh, digital uh, platforms and tools so people can actually share data and, and, and design uh, more sustainable systems. And we're also working with investors to enable resilience funds to be set up or investment funds to be set up in city regions to be drawn down into a portfolio of transformation of a combination of, of infrastructure and, uh, and other investments uh, to enable cities to move forward in the right way. So we're currently brokering that and working to set up demonstration city regions and to, to help uh, scale that up across the world, working with 
all of the leaders in in that cutting edge of change. Oh, that's great. Sounds like a great, great project. Uh, great, uh, many different projects, I'm sure. But having that centralised information and trying to share and and uh, build on best practice um, sounds very interesting. Just going back, I guess, finally to do with this question of resilience. Um, and I know there was recently uh, uh, an article, I think, in the New Yorker, which which got a little bit of attention online about. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was called "What If We Stop Pretending?" But the idea was that a uh, uh, climate apocalypse is coming and that we you know in a way can't really do very much about it but we need to kind of focus on adaptation that kind of thing and there's this can you talk a little bit about your sense of this uh mitigation versus adaptation uh, technical language a little bit um but this sense of you know where priority should be and focus in terms of you know uh cutting carbon emissions but also i guess adapting and building in advance this kind of resilience which which uh, within the system yeah sure i mean in in reality we we are seeing right now um climate change impacts accelerating rather faster than even the, at the time of the paris agreement we're anticipating so actually what we need to do in terms of adaptation which is really adapting to those impacts and 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 being prepared and being able to to sort of deal with them on the ground and mitigating and trying to slow down the the, the amount of emissions that we put in the air and speed up the sequestration of carbon through natural systems so there are sort of those three dynamics all have to happen together uh, which is why everyone talks about mitigation and adaptation as a package um, in reality, I think everyone's now realizing that actually living in harmony with the natural systems and stopping the ecological destruction uh, at the same time as revising the way we live on the planet is actually the only way we can really do this now. We can't look at it as a technocratic reducing carbon thing uh, because that isn't going to uh, – uh, it might slow down carbon emissions. It isn't going to absorb carbon, uh, which is what we really got to do as well. And of course, uh, in terms of dealing with adaptation, as I've tried to describe, uh, living in harmony with natural systems uh, is a much more powerful way of dealing with floods and, and uh, reducing temperatures in cities and so on, which helps us to deal with adaptation as well. So actually, I think we're all now moving to a point where we have an understanding we need a holistic approach to actually regenerate natural systems to stop destroying ecological systems uh, through the way that we revise the way we live in cities. Um, and, and people now call that regenerative development. Um, uh, so we're not talking about growth anymore. We're talking about regenerative development, regenerative for both ecological systems and people, and, and working out what that means in terms of investing in, in, in existing cities and building new ones. Very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of work. Another one of those R words that's increasingly um, in, in uh, that people are using, and, and, and as you say, the regeneration ideas are, are very, very important. Um, just one final question, maybe uh, linked into this. You talked about holistic ways of looking at things. I, I think uh, I understand you're 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 interested in in in, in systems and in looking at systems, thinking about systems and in, in in how they. I mean, we talk about natural systems, but systems and, and ecosystems. Can you talk a little bit about um, the, how important it is that we, you know, uh, that maybe some of the challenges as well of developing a genuinely kind of systems approach to looking at the problems we have. But I suppose, as you say, not just looking at the problems, but 
maybe a systems approach to going forward to uh, creating the kind of environment or trying to create the kind of environment that would help us uh, minimize these kind of environmental problems in the future? Yeah, sure. I, I'm a I'm a visiting professor in sustainable systems engineering, and and that sort of came about because I realised that uh, through my work, you know, practical things like um, helping to support and deliver the second seven crossing project in in the, in, the, in in Bristol, uh, it you know you you understand when you do something like that, everything is connected to everything else, and and people's lives and the natural systems and the way we look at the flow of money and the way we look at um, the environmental and air quality and things are all interconnected. So basically, uh, one of the objectives is to enable people to actually make decisions in a way where they have a better understanding of those systems interconnections. And, and you know, one simple example is, is air quality. We know very well that if we build roads in cities and we put cars and vehicles into those cities that spew out pollution, that uh, health will, will deteriorate. And yet we've been planning and designing roads in cities uh, since the Industrial Revolution, without the decision makers on the, on the investing in the roads taking account of that impact in their decisions, so a systems approach means that you you actually look at the whole uh, outcome in the city when you decide to make an investment, not just the extra capacity for moving around, but the impact on people's health. And if you do that, then actually the decisions you'll make are profoundly different. So what we need to do is to have the tools, which is what we're doing in Resilience Brokers, to design some tools so that people can actually see those things very clearly and make better decisions in a collaborative way. And, and in the end, that's the only way we're going to get out of the, the problems that we're in. And very often it's cheaper. Uh, if you take a systems approach, looking at it like that, you, you find the total cost of moving forward is 40% lower than it is if you do it separately. And, and so there's a big, uh, a big advantage in, in terms of uh, taking that uh, holistic approach. But I suppose the other, the downside, uh, not the downside, but one of the challenges associated with that is these kind of process. I suppose there's an existing governance which is probably associated with hierarchy and, um, and you know, clearly the way the, the capitalist system operates at the moment. Um, but also that you talked about cities and, and, and speed and velocity and so forth, that these kind of bottom-up uh, approaches do take time. Yeah, that's right. And and you're right in saying that the governance structures uh, have to be revised uh, from being single departments operating independently to, to operating collaboratively. It's quite interesting on my journey because when we when the second seven crossing was opened in 1996, which was a privately financed project, which which was really successful in delivering performance outcomes for the the, the crossing always being made available to people despite uh, incredibly high winds. Uh, that was a time when John Prescott was appointed by the new Labour government to set up a combined regional. Um, a ministry which combined transport, environment and regional development. Um, and he did that for this very reason, that it needed to be a more holistic approach. But the problem is they didn't have the tools to make those decisions at that time. And therefore, it gradually got separated out again. Uh, but if we had the tools, I think that's what we would find more and more, you know, that we would combine these various departments together uh, to, to actually make joint decisions. 
Very interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about, uh, Peter. Uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you and uh, get insights over your long journey and all the work you've done. And I wish you the very best of success in the future. And thank you so much. Thank you very much, Virgil. This was a great pleasure. And uh, I hope it's uh, interesting for people. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.